Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 12, 1 through 12. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to the tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others, some they beat, and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we're still in Mark. You're like, when are we going to get out? When we get out, when we get out. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 12. Um, I just love the Gospels. I love just seeing these glimpses and pictures of Jesus. Uh, before we get into the text, I, I, I realized a couple of months ago, I, I thought, you know, if there ever was a time where I just wanted to talk to the church heart to heart, it probably is this time, because <laughs> like y'all are here. And I just always want to communicate my love and care uh, for you all. Um, I, I don't see you as a, a, you know, a, a nebulous crowd. I see individual faces, and, and I, I hear stories. Or I, just, I just love the way that y'all care about each other. And I, I want to remind you that one of God's means of grace to us as a church is each other. One of the good things about coming to church on Sunday is not just to be in a crowd, but to, to exchange greetings and, and words of care and concern and love to one another. That is one of God's main ways of encouraging us. And so I am encouraged by you, and I know that y'all are encouraged by one another. So just know that when you come on Sunday, yes, the preaching, the singing, the prayer, all that's a means of grace. But you, your presence here is a means of grace to somebody. All right? So maybe you're like, I don't know why I came. Well, you came to encourage me, and you came to encourage those around you. All right? God uses you in that way. Um, usually I have a pretty introduction to the sermon, but I don't. So uh, the main point is this. Do not reject God's message or his messenger. Do not reject God's message or his messenger. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand your word this morning. And Lord, that we would not only understand, but that we would obey from the heart what you are teaching. Lord, your word is, is quick, it's active, it gets to the heart, it, it discerns our intentions. So Lord, I pray that your word would do its job today by the power of the Holy Spirit. May we submit to what you are saying and rejoice in your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. All right, so we're in the middle of a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And oftentimes, Jesus would teach his disciples and others in what we call parables. A parable is a story or a saying that illustrates a truth using comparison, hyperbole, or simile. It could be a model, an analogy, or an example. And we have Jesus giving the story. And if you remember that last verse, they realized that the story was actually about them. So let's look at this parable of analogy to understand not just what Jesus was teaching them, but what Jesus is teaching us today. We look at the first couple of verses, we, we, are, we, we learn that God generously gives grace. In verse 1 it says, he, that's Jesus, he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At the harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. Now, before we, we, we go into the, the, the speech about what, he, what happened to the son, we need to understand that this vineyard owner was very generous. He gave these tenant farmers a beautiful place to be. Now, listen, I've never been to a vineyard, but they always talk about uh, the vineyards in Southern California and how beautiful and awesome that they, they are. He gave them a beautiful place to be. Not only that, he gave them a safe place to, to be. He built a fence around it, and he had a watchtower. So they say, you come work for me. You can see this, this beautiful uh, scenery. Don't worry about people coming to attack you. i got a watchtower here. And he gave them provision. We'll learn that he wasn't going to take all of the fruit of the vineyard for himself, that they could enjoy some of the fruit of that vineyard. And all he asked for was a portion of that fruit. The tenants can enjoy the rest. He wasn't a, an angry boss demanding all of the produce. He, he had good intentions for them. This is not the story of a boss that's harsh or one that just wants to abuse or manipulate. This is of one who wants to give generously. And it points to the fact that we have a generous creator and sustainer God. Look at the beauty that we enjoy. Sometimes we don't actually take into account the beauty that we get to enjoy. Just, just imagine uh, the, the different sensations that you get through your five senses. When you see something beautiful, when you smell something that, is, that, that just is like, oh, that, that reminds me of some beautiful and wonderful memory. When you eat some good food, all of these things are gifts from God. The fact that, that the world not only functions, but there are things in the world for which you can enjoy. The fact that you can enjoy it is a gift from God, that he gives us relationships, friendships, families, and, and we can delight in one another. That in of itself is a gift of his marvelous grace. Can we not, can you not see how he protects you? We're here. We got our sound minds. We have the food that we need. He has provided for us, has he not? He wants us to acknowledge his grace, his creating grace, his sustaining grace, and offer him the fruit of love and good works. In reality, this is intuitive, right? We give thanks and honor to those who have been kind to us 
Usually you don't have to tell somebody to do that. It should be obvious, but sometimes we forget our obligation and our thanksgiving towards God when we see all the things that he has provided for us with his great and lavish generosity. That's before we get to the gospel, before we get to what Christ the Son has done. We need to realize that our Father is loving and generous and kind. And that what he wants from us is a recognition of his generous gifts and a posture of thanksgiving and service. You know, we, when we get to the next couple of verses, we realize that we often reject God's message and his messengers. Verse three, and four, uh, 3, 4, and 5, it says, But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head, treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. Look at the pride of these tenants. The vineyard owner only wanted what was his due. Again, he was not giving some some crazy request. He wasn't trying to take all their fun and joy. He had already provided for them so much. This points to the history of God's people's rejection of the prophets, of the messengers of God. In Hebrews 11, it gives this little summary of how people who have spoken for God have been mistreated. And in Hebrews 11, starting in verse 35, it says, it says, other people were tortured, not accepting release, so they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Talking about the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, all the way up to John the Baptist, those who came to communicate God's grace and to communicate that we ought to be thankful and and fulfill our obligations to him, they were consistently mistreated. That's the hit. If you go back and read the Old Testament, that is a history. He is given an analogy of what happened in, in the Old Testament. When God would consistently send messengers, and all the time they are rejected over and over and over again. And you might say to yourself, Well, I haven't persecuted any prophets. How does this apply to me? I ain't stoned anybody. But we are all guilty of the rejection of God. And his messengers. One of the ways, the primary ways that he communicates to us is through creation. Theologians call this general revelation. What am I talking about? In Romans 1.20, it says, For his, in, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. What he's saying is this, is if you look around creation... You realize there is a creator. When you see the awesome magnificence of what has been made and how it doesn't seem as if it were by chance, you can have this this understanding that there was an origin, a source, an intelligent designer. What's interesting is this, is that, that, that atheism is not innate. No matter which what culture you go to, you someone has to be taught that. 
We actually instinctively in every, on every single continent and every culture for in all of history, you can see some signs that they recognize there was a divine originator. And that something was owed, something was due to him. And not only was something due to him, but that there were actual standards of morality. What's interesting is, is depending on the culture and time, there are differences between the standards of morality, but there always is a standard. There always is some code of conduct because people realize there's a creator, that he is owed thanksgiving, and that he expects something from us. We instinctively know there's a creator. We instinctively know that there is some sort of moral law. And what have we done? Beloved, we have rejected it. You know, sometimes I, I'm talking to people about Jesus. One of the things I love to do is just, I love to, to, to do evangelism, to, to talk to people at various stages of their understanding of God. And, and I say, listen, listen, let's, let's, let's just, let's, let's level here. Even if you don't believe that there is an objective moral standard, have you ever felt guilty? What do you think they say? Yeah. Because instinctively, in the depths of their heart, even if they would intellectually say there is not, they would know by experience that there is. So even those who would say there's no moral standard feel the guilt of their sin. That is one of God's messengers to us. And how often do we reject it, ignore it, suppress it? No, I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, so we've rejected his general revelation, his, his creation, his sustaining grace, the fact there's a moral law. But, but we have also rejected his special revelation. Listen, because we rejected general revelation, God sent prophets, he sent his own son, and he's given us the gift of the scriptures. And I don't care how pious and religious you are, have there not been times when you have disobeyed the scriptures? Listen, we, we, the craziest thing is, we stand condemned by our own conscience and by the objective scriptures on the outside of us. We reject his general revelation. We reject that special revelation. We reject the proclamation of his word. There are times when we have rejected and disliked those who have told us the hard truths from God. And so you can look at, at this parable and go, what wicked people to reject this message from such a generous vineyard owner. But then if we think that, the finger has to point back to us as well. That God has communicated to us clearly. And we have sought to suppress that and reject that. All of us have been guilty of rejecting God and his messengers at some point in our lives. Who here is innocent? But God in his grace doesn't stop there. God sends his own son to speak to us. And yet we rejected him. In verse 6, 7, and 8 it says, he still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. Look at the great patience of this vineyard owner. Look, if they would have killed one of my servants, it's over. You know what I'm saying? Like, come on, let's get real. I didn't sense like that. Like, they were my friend. You can't just be killing folk. You know what I mean? <laughs> but he's like, well, maybe. 
maybe if I just send my own son. This, this is out of love for the tenants, out of care. Think about this great patience that is displayed from this owner. He sent someone who shares his authority. They're like, well, maybe, maybe they didn't understand how serious I was, so I'll send my own son so that they know what I'm like, and they understand that he speaks with my authority. You know, maybe they needed the boss to come. Maybe the managers weren't doing a good job. So, so, so it was an undercover boss, if you will, came. And, and maybe if they understood that he was there, they would respect him. He sent him as a final resort. He said, finally. I, listen, if they reject the final resort, what hope is there for them? We see that the Son of God was murdered by the very people that he came to show compassion on. You know, some of Jesus' parables are rather hard to understand. I'm not sure if this is one of them. I think, I think he's, he's making it very clear. In John chapter 1, verses 11, it says, He, Jesus, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The thing about parables is, is it... Uh, it kind of depersonalizes it from you so you can have an objective stance. Here's what I mean. You know, when, when David uh, killed Bathsheba's wife and took Bathsheba as his own wife, he didn't, he's like, oh, I'm good. Like, he didn't see his own sin. He's just living his life. And then the prophet Nathan came to him, and Nathan's like, let me tell you this story. Suppose there was a man who had a sheep that he loved. It was his only sheep, but there was one who took the only sheep that he loved. And David was like, well, we need to kill that guy. And then Nathan goes, it's you. You're the man. When we see these parables, I think it's, it's instinctual for us to, to try to understand, but it kind of puts it outside of ourselves. But the reality is that parables function as a mirror. And that when we see the truth of the parable, and we don't see ourselves in it, we have missed the point. Jesus is telling the story of this generous vineyard owner who has given his tenants everything they need and given them things to enjoy and has been greatly, uh, greatly patient with them as he has sent servant after servant, messenger after messenger. And we could look at those tenant, tenants and think, what is wrong with them? Why wouldn't they just listen? Was it not obvious? Beloved, if we have that attitude, that attitude must be pointed at ourselves. Have we not disobeyed God and somebody from the outside could go, come on now, what are you doing? The son of God was murdered by the very people that he came to show compassion on. And then in verse 9, it gets really real. <laughs> what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. That ain't meek and mild Jesus, is it? Does that seem harsh? But re remember the consistent and violent rejection. You know, oftentimes when I'm speaking with our, uh, with our students at student ministry, one of the things, I love it because a lot of times they don't come with a lot of uh, 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 
churchy expectations. And so it challenges me to really think through and explain what I'm saying. And, and one of the ways that I try to explain sin to them is a lot of times we think about sin as these just random, uh, like, just rules. These random rules that sometimes we break, it is what it is. But one of the things I tell them repeatedly, I say, hey, imagine if, let's just say you thought I had good advice. And they kind of laugh at that because I don't know if they think that. But imagine you thought I had good advice, all right? And you asked me some good advice about life, and I gave you some really, like, like thoughtful like, like insightful information about how to live your life. And you looked at me and you said, that is the stupidest thing I have ever heard. I said, how would you think I would feel? They go, you probably you feel kind of disrespected. And I'm like, that's sin. It's not breaking like random rules. It is, it is disrespectful to the one who wrote the law. When we say that we are wiser than him, that's why it is an actual, it's a personal slight against the holy God. When we say, I know what to do more than you, I'm smarter than you. It's not just rules that we have broken, but a person that we have disrespected. That's the nature of what sin is. And if we reject God, we will be passed over and his blessings will go to others. Isn't that what it said? It says he's going to kill the farmers and do what? Well, y'all ain't like my vineyard. Maybe somebody else will like it. I don't know about you, but I want his blessing. I don't want to reject, I don't want to reject him. I don't, I don't, I don't want, want to, to, to be passed over. And then when we go to verse 10 and 11, we realize that God uses this rejected one to build his kingdom. In verse 10, it says, have you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is wonderful in our eyes. I'm going to clue you in on something, y'all. The stone is Jesus. I know that's pretty, that's some good acumen, isn't it? The stone is Jesus, and God's plan was and is, is to build his house on Christ. Yet he was rejected, but through his rejection comes our salvation. His rejection and death on the cross is the foundation of our forgiveness. It's part of the, one of the mysteries of, of, of God's plan and his sovereignty. Matter of fact, when, when Apostle Peter is trying to explain what happened to Jesus in Acts 2.23, he says, he says, Though Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. In other words, you had a plan to reject him. But in that rejection is God's sovereign plan to take care of our sin problem. See, Christ died in our place for our forgiveness. And the stone that was rejected is the foundation of the church, the community of the ones who are forgiven. Because if we read this parable appropriately, we will see that we are the tenants who have rejected. But there is a way out. There is a way of forgiveness and a way to be restored back to God again. And it's through accepting the sacrifice of his Beloved son. So, so as we hear the word of God, and sometimes with this heaviness, it's, it's weightiness, we must be careful not to harden our hearts to the warnings and the promises in the word. 
In verse 12, it says, they were looking for a way to arrest him. They being the religious leaders. The religious leaders were looking for a way to arrest him, but they feared the crowd because they, had, because he, they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. What's interesting is if they knew that the parable was against them, could they not have just taken a moment and go, well, wait a minute. Let me look, should I do some introspection? Like, you know, like, he's talking about me. And instead of, forget you, you know, like, like they could, if they just would have paused a moment, if they wouldn't have hardened their hearts, if they wouldn't have jumped so quickly to anger, maybe they could have felt the conviction and could have gone another way. But they knew that the parable was against them. See, the, the parable for them is that Israel was the vineyard and the religious leaders were the tenants. And they are the ones who rejected the prophets and the ones who would kill Christ. And they will be stripped of their leadership. Leadership of God's people would not be in their hands. It would pass to the apostles and the church leaders. And the Lord's vineyard would be open to all people. See, this, this parable, in reality, is a critique on spiritual leadership. This is specifically a call to those who are or who aspire to leadership in God's kingdom. I want you to remember their reason. They said, the heir is coming. And they said, come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They want a glory for themselves. They use the things of God to make themselves look better. They use God's word to gain power and accolades for themselves. See, we've got to be careful not to use the position that God gives us as a means of personal advancement or control. And I had a, I had a conversation with somebody last week, and we were talking about, uh, you know, th- th- sometimes, let's just be real, sometimes pastors and church leaders, they, they, they fall. They don't, they don't meet the bar of holiness. And, and I said, there's usually two major sins that happens. It goes one of two ways. One is probably the one you're more familiar with. One is, is, is some sort of sexual sin. But the other one is bullying. I can't tell you how many times I have talk, spoken with people, known personally, someone who has been bullied by a church leader because what, they did the exact same thing that the religious leaders of this text were doing. They used God's words as a mechanism of control and as a mean to expand their personal influence. The inheritance that belongs to Jesus Christ alone, the authority that belongs to Jesus Christ alone, they wanted it themselves. So, beloved, we have to be careful that we are in no way seeking to steal the glory and the inheritance of our Lord, Jesus Christ. We all need to be careful not to harden our hearts against God's warnings. If God's word come to you, don't get angry, but rather humble yourself and go, could this be me? Search me, Lord. So if we were to retell the parable for us, it would go something like this. God planted a wonderful vineyard, and he gave us stewardship and enjoyment of it. He gave us stuff to do and stuff to enjoy. And he expects his people to give him back the fruit of worship and obedience. 
We all have rejected his messages from creation and his word. Our sins put his son on the cross. But if we believe in the death and resurrection of Christ, we are forgiven. Not only that, he enables us to bear the good fruit of love and service. This is a call. If if you don't know Christ yet, you felt any ounce of conviction for sin, this is a call for you to come to him. To, To acknowledge the fact that you have missed the standard, you've missed the mark. That not only have you declined certain rules, but you've insulted a person. But this person and his love and care for you died in your place. And you can have forgiveness and peace and enjoyment now and forevermore. Beloved, come to Christ. Come to him because he loves you. He cares for you. He's more patient than us. And for all of us, what what does this scripture, what could this challenge us to do? I think number one is that we should humble ourselves to God's word. If scripture convicts you, you ought to submit to it. This presupposes that you're interacting with the scriptures regularly. Yeah? Listen, I I, I want to, to submit to the scriptures because the God and the creator of heaven and earth wants to speak to me there. Sometimes we can read the word of God as a textbook. We can stand over it. And we're the judge and the arbiter about what is right and what is good. Or I'll receive that or I won't receive this. But, but beloved, if we stand up over the word as a judge and an arbiter, we have missed the point. The word is an examiner of our own hearts. And so maybe even before you open the scriptures, before you press play on your app, maybe you could say, Lord, speak to me now. Help me to see what you're saying. This is your very word. And I believe that you have something to say to me. We don't read scriptures for just information about about ancient things that happened 2,000 years ago. But the word of God is alive and active right now. And the spirit of God uses the word of God to communicate to us right now. Say, oh, Lord, I want to know what you're saying. If you want to know what he is saying, open your hearts and open the scriptures and say, spirit of the living God, speak to me. A slow reflection on what he's saying. Not only are we to humble ourselves to God's word, we need to humble ourselves to the messengers of God's word. This means that you are humble enough to receive a word of correction from a pastor, a brother, or a sister in the Lord. I think because, because of the culture we live in, I think our spiritual lives are a bit too privatized. It's me and the Lord. It's not just you and the Lord. It's us and the Lord. It's us and the Lord. You need trusted people in your life that have permission to speak God's word to you and for you to not be offended. 
you need trusted people in your life. You know, I was, I was, I was talking to a brother this weekend. I think one of the most common questions that I get is, is how do I discern what God's will is? I'm, I'm going to give you the, 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 the common, uh, whether it's an answer or a reflex. People think they can discern God's will like in a room by themselves. Like I'm going to get alone and I'm going to feel a certain kind of feeling. And when I feel that certain kind of feeling, I don't know what's fuzzy, I don't know what it is. If I feel that certain kind of feeling, then I'll know. But what you have done is that you have taken away one of the, the, the key discernment processes in your life. God uses his people to help you discern what to do. In Acts chapter 13, before Apostle Paul was sent out to be a, like the greatest missionary of all time, it says he was praying with four other church leaders, and it says that the Holy Spirit said to them, not simply individually to Paul, but to them, set apart Paul for the work that I have for him to do. There would be so much peace and so much assurance if you would let trusted brothers and sisters into the life of your discernment because they have the Spirit of God too. Beloved, this is a call for humility. Because if we've agreed with anything in the sermon, we've all agreed there have been times when we haven't listened very well to the Lord. But we can humble ourselves, submit to his word, and even submit to one another so that we can walk lockstep with him. So y'all, don't reject God's message or his messenger. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. And Lord, sometimes the, the tone of your word is, is hard. But Lord, let us not shy away from that. For your word is good. And you are like a, a great physician. If you cut us, it is to heal us. So, Lord, let us receive the cuts from your words that we can be healed and that we can bear much fruit to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.